Welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, where together we will explore the origins, battles, campaigns, individuals, and consequences of the American Civil War. My name is Sean, and this is Episode 4, Crisis at Fort Sumter, Part 3. Before we rejoin the narrative here in Episode 4, there are a few housekeeping items to take care of. If you want to reach out with questions or comments, feel free to do so on the show's Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash podcast, Or you can email the show at americancivilwarpodcast at gmail.com. In addition to listening to the show on Podbean and Apple Podcasts, you can now also listen to the show on Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, or Player FM. Last episode, we left off with two newly inaugurated presidents managing a crisis neither of them had started, with Fort Sumter's position becoming increasingly perilous, and a new general in Charleston taking over command of what will soon become the Confederate Army. So we will begin this episode introducing this newly minted Confederate general. Pierre Gustave Toutant Beauregard was summoned by Confederate President Jefferson Davis back on February 22nd, and directed to assume command of all Confederate forces at Charleston. A veteran of the Mexican War, whose work and conduct drew even the attention of General Winfield Scott for his incisive and daring work. Beauregard, who graduated second in his class when he graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point in 1838, was apparently so skilled in the technical and tactical aspects of artillery that his instructor, brought him on as an assistant instructor, keeping him at West Point for another year. That instructor was now Beauregard's opponent, Major Robert Anderson. For all you Star Wars fans out there, if that scene in the first Star Wars movie of Darth Vader facing off with Obi-Wan Kenobi and their epic lightsaber duel with Darth Vader saying, The circle is now complete. When I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. I will have to disappoint you. For as William Bruce Johnson notes in his book, Lincoln's First Crisis, that after Beauregard took command in Charleston, the notes passed between the two were not just civil, but also cordial, with Beauregard even asking Anderson that as a condition of leaving the fort unmolested by his gunners, that Anderson would not destroy any of the equipment or infrastructure inside the fort, and even at one point sending a gift to Anderson, though he politely returned it. To make this even more interesting, Beauregard wasn't even the first choice to assume command of what was at first the South Carolinian, and then later the Confederate forces in and around Charleston. The original pick was yet another soldier well-known to Major Anderson, and in fact was a fellow classmate, author, artilleryman, and Mexican War veteran by the name of Benjamin Hugger. Hugger had gained distinction during the Mexican War for his capture of Veracruz, after only three weeks of shelling. This accomplishment led the political leadership to naturally conclude that he was the perfect choice to lead the effort to take Fort Sumter. Hugger repeatedly declined these invitations, noting in his letter to his cousin Alfred in early January that, quote, Major Anderson and myself went to West Point together 40 years ago and have been comrades in the Army from that day to this. Later in the letter, he would go on to caution against any actions that would inflame the situation, writing, quote, not to commit any act tending to civil war, which none of us may see the end of, 
Now concurrent with all this activity that we have talked about up to this date so far, there is yet another item that has typically been ignored by many, but not all, of the histories to date, and this is the construction project that was ongoing at the Charleston waterfront. Not long after the new year, the Marsh's shipyard quickly became a beehive of activity, which quickly drew the attention of Major Anderson and his men. This work was taking place under the direction of Lieutenant James Hamilton of the now infant Navy of South Carolina, and formerly of the United States Navy, who was directing the construction of a waterborne gun platform. Now, waterborne gun platforms are nothing new. At 100 feet long and 25 feet wide, and described as looking like a cross between a covered bridge and a barn, its sides were pierced by four gun ports, which would eventually hold a pair of 32 and 42 pound cannons. The weights described here do not refer to the weight of the cannon themselves, but of the weight of the cannonballs that the cannon shot. However, this is not what made this project either special or important or even of interest to Major Anderson. What did make this special is that its sides were covered with boilerplate and crosshatched with vertical strips of railroad iron, in essence, a crude armored plate. The gunners of this floating battery were from Company D of the South Carolina Artillery Battalion, who apparently were skeptical enough of this creation to refer to it as the slaughter pen, with others still doubtful that it would even float. Even some of the soldiers and officers inside Fort Sumter doubted the significance of this new threat. Major Anderson's gunner's eye, however, didn't like what it saw and expressed his concern about it in a letter to Washington to ask for instructions as to how he should deal with this potential threat. Without going into an insane amount of detail, I will summarize. Anderson's question prompted a cabinet meeting in the outgoing Buchanan administration, and their response to Anderson was essentially the, the typical political non-answer that one would always expect from a lame-duck politician, or for that matter, from a lame-duck administration. As we learned in our previous episode, the crisis here at Fort Sumter quickly became center stage following the inauguration of President Lincoln on March 4th. One month later, with time quickly running out to resupply the fort, the clock essentially forced the Lincoln administration to act. On April 6th, President Lincoln drafted a letter and sent it to Governor Pickens of South Carolina, informing him that the federal government would be resupplying the fort with only provisions. As long as this was not contested, no attempt would be made by the federal government to reinforce the garrison with soldiers, arms, or ammunition. The notice was made with no mention of a date or time of when such an attempt would be made or even how it would be made, i.e. by a warship or by a civilian vessel chartered for the purpose. That evening, two couriers left Washington by train for Charleston with instructions to deliver the notice as long as the United States flag still flew over the fort and no attack was already underway. Now, from everything I've read, there are some interesting nuances in this drama that should, at a minimum, be acknowledged. The first is that at no time during the crisis, or in the war that was about to commence, did President Lincoln, or for that matter, the United States government, ever acknowledge the existence of the Confederate government or of President Davis. To do so would have given tacit legitimacy to that government, which Lincoln could not afford to do. Lincoln's notice of April 6th was directed to the governor of South Carolina, 
which despite their act of secession, Lincoln has never acknowledged its legitimacy. The second is that the exact wording of the notice to Governor Pickens was never forwarded to the Confederate government in Montgomery. Instead, it was summarized by General Beauregard. As a result, Davis and his cabinet were denied the opportunity to parse its wording as part of their deliberations. The summarized message that was communicated to Montgomery was far more belligerent sounding than in fact it was. Beauregard wrote, quote, An authorized messenger from President Lincoln just informed Governor Pickens and myself that provisions will be sent to Fort Sumter peaceably or otherwise by force. Given these nuances, or lack thereof, depending on one's perspective, it then makes it a bit easier to understand how the government in Montgomery came to the conclusion that it does next. As they saw it, they had four options. Option 1. Allow the resupply operation to go and proceed unimpeded. This would, of course, demonstrate humility, but by allowing the garrison to continue to stay at the same time would undermine their own legitimacy. Option 2. Intercept the resupply ship as it entered the harbor and refuse it entry in a peaceful manner. From a PR perspective, not exactly a good option to be seen in the context of denying food and to be accused of starving people. Option 3. Open fire on any ship or ships attempting to resupply the fort. Again, another negative from a PR perspective in not only are you starving people, but are also attacking potentially civilians while you are starving people. However, it has a potential upside in that you could label the federal government's attempt to, as an incursion into your territory and as an aggressive act, which could gain you support in both the Upper South, i.e. the slave states that have yet to secede, and the European governments the Confederates have their hopes pinned on for foreign recognition. Option 4. Attack Fort Sumter prior to the arrival of any resupply ship or ships. One of the downsides to option 3 was the potential of having to fight both the approaching fleet while at the same time fighting Fort Sumter, thereby dividing the limited supplies of both powder and ammunition for the cannons that the Confederates had on hand. The larger the potential fleet was, the more divided that ammunition becomes, the less concentrated one's fire becomes, the less effective that fire is. On top of that, these gunners are relatively new to the skill set, or to say in other words, they're very green. The upside to attacking before the fleet arrived is that it would give the notion of being a quote-unquote fair fight against a target that could defend itself, i.e. shoot back, as opposed to potential supply ships, as well as being a more economical use of what was a limited amount of ammunition. Their decision was reached on April 10th. Confederate Secretary of War Walker telegrammed General Beauregard to demand Major Anderson's evacuation prior to any attempt to resupply, and upon his refusal to attack. Thus, the die was cast. Before we end today's podcast, I would like to take a moment to ask this community to support our local historical societies. Many towns and counties throughout the United States have a wonderful group of local people who are dedicated to preserving our local history. 
Without our local history, we cannot fully tell our state or even our national histories in their entirety. So I am asking each of you listening to take a few spare dollars and make a donation of any size to your local municipal or county historical societies. Next time, we will continue our historical narrative with the attack on Fort Sumter.